0: Hello, listeners. Welcome to the fourth episode of Season 1 of Itihasa, an Indic history podcast. Season 1 is all about the Vijayanagara Empire. If you haven't already checked out the last three episodes, I would highly recommend it for a better context and a full backstory. In today's episode, we will pick up from where we left previously. In the last episode, we saw it ending with Ramaraya's gunboat diplomacy backfiring in his face and the Nizam Shah of Ahmadnagar taking the initiative to unite all his rivals to avenge his humiliation at the hands of Ramaraya. At this point I won't blame most of my listeners for thinking what an irrational fool Ramaraya was to have worked so hard to unite his enemies against him. But here I have to request you to take a pause and ask yourself what would have led one of the most powerful men in India at that time to engage in such suicidal diplomacy which ultimately brought down the empire crashing. After all, we all are creatures of habit and deep desires, so there has to be some sort of motivation fueling even the deceptively irrational of behaviors somehow uh, most of the contemporary and modern historians were never really bothered to dig into this uh, aspect of Ramaraya so a psychoanalysis was never performed on him. Farishta we saw earlier was trying to explain Ramaraya's policies as nothing but Islamophobia and other historians tend to stop at Ramaraya's beheading event. This is how far most of the historians have gone in trying to decipher this powerful man's puzzling behavior that altered the history of South India in such a dramatic way. Here is where two of the foremost experts on Deccan and South Indian history K.A. Neelakanta Shastri and professor Richard M. Eaton step in and provide us with some valuable insights. Neelakanta Shastri provides us some evidence and perspective on Ramaraya's missteps with respect to governance and internal security matters. And Richard M. Eaton provides us some fantastic insights into Ramaraya's personal motivations that shaped his policies when it came to the Deccan Sultanates. So putting these pieces together, we can get a sense of the how and the why of Ramaraya's policies, both internal and external. There was a clear method to the madness of Ramaraya. The clue to Ramaraya's motivations lie in the story that I narrated in the previous episode. Some astute listeners might have already caught the clue. If you remember, I kept mentioning the back and forth fighting for one contested city that kept changing hands between the rival sultanates with the help of Ramaraya's interference or support. Professor Richard Eaton in his scholarly work, A Social History of Deccan, 1300 to 1761 shows us how the city is at the center of Ramaraya's universe. He connects the dots beautifully in his work. None of the explanations that I've read so far from other historical sources have been as convincing as Eaton's. So in this aspect I have to actually give a huge kudos to him for getting to the bottom of Ramaraya's behavior. The contested city's name was Kalyana, or now known as Basava Kalyana, that's located in Bidar district of Karnataka. It was also known as Kalyani before independence of India. It was the royal capital of the Western Chalukya dynasty, also called as Kalyani Chalukyas, from 1050 to 1195 AD. It has had a long history of changing hands from Kalachuris of Kalyani, Yadavas of Devagri, Kakatiyas, Delhi Sultanate, Bahmani Sultanate, Bidar Sultanate, Bijapur Sultanate, Mughals and finally the Hyderabad Nizams. To understand why this city was such a critical piece of Ramaraya's mental makeup and his continuous obsession with it, I have to tell you a few more details of his background. Ramaraya's career had begun in the service of Kutubshahi court of Golconda. As a young and talented military officer he rose through the ranks fast and was given the responsibility of one or more districts of Golconda. In one of the raids on those districts by enemy forces, Ramaraya as a frontier commander fails to hold a district and he ends up retreating tactically. As a consequence of this retreat, he is disgraced at the Kutupshahi court and is eventually expelled. After this, Ramaraya moves to Vijayanagara where his talents are spotted by the great Devaraya instantly during few military campaigns. Here his stars align and the great Raya has his daughter Thirmalamba married off with Ramaraya. With this, Ramaraya is officially inducted into Vijayanagara's nobility. We have seen earlier how Ramaraya rose in power gradually and ended up becoming the supreme regent. Strangely enough, in spite of being part of the Vijayanagara nobility and rising to the top of the Vijayanagara food chain, Ramaraya as per Eton never fully considered himself belonging to the Vijayanagara heritage. Deep in his heart and mind, he always saw himself as part of the bygone Chalukyan royalty during Ramaraya's time, it was almost 300 years since the Chalukyan Empire had collapsed, but the memories of it were really fresh in his mind. So, Ramaraya had hailed from the family of Aravidu clan, who considered themselves as a direct royal descendants of the erstwhile Chalukya dynasty. Chalukya dynasty had ruled over parts of now Maharashtra, Karnataka, Telangana, and Andhra Pradesh, transcending so many linguistic borders. So Ramanayas claimed ties to Chalukyas as per written, therefore signaled a return to a, a much earlier conception of authority, one whose spatial reach had extended from Chalukyan capital Kalyana over the entire Deccan plateau, both north and south of the Krishna river. In so many words, Ramaraya saw himself as a rightful ruler of the domains of Chalukyas. Though the reality on the ground was entirely different because the current capital Kalyana was occupied by the Deccan Sultanates and it has always been in the position of the Sultanates since the last two to three hundred years. So it was this Ramaraya's constant imagination about being the rightful ruler of the capital of Kalyana or Chalukyas. It's worth pointing out the fact that Ramaraya's home base of Chandragiri, which is now part of Andhra Pradesh, would have evoked strong memories of the fierce rivalry between Chalukyas and Cholas. All the associated glory attached to this epic rivalry would have held him in awe still. I think he never was able to digest the transgenerational trauma that came attached with the collapse of both the empires following the gruesome Delhi Sultanate's invasions and pillage in the 13th century. In a way, I can empathize with what Ramaraya might have gone through in that aspect. To be honest, as South Indians or Indians, many of us ourselves haven't still been able to get over the trauma of beautiful Hampi's destruction almost half a millennia ago. For Ramaraya, the destruction or the capture of capital of Kalyana was much more fresher than what Hampi means to us almost 450 years ago. These powerful memories that were so fresh in Ramaraya's mind had a stranglehold on his psyche that made him obsess about the city of Kalyana. The skeptic's deep desire to be a virtual lord of the old Shalukan capital, Kalyana, burning constantly. And this invariably leads him to engage in all those joint invasions of Kalyana with whichever Sultan, Deccan Sultan, he was allied with at that moment. He didn't think hard about what it would mean for the long-term health of the Vijayanagara Empire. The moment he fell out with one sultan, he would ally with someone else and then help him to acquire Kalyana. This way, he always felt in control of Kalyana and reimagined himself as its Chalukyan overlord that exerted influence over it through a proxy of one of the Deccan sultanates. The other reason why Ramaraya probably craved for the Chalukyan past was his ineligibility to become the supreme emperor of Vijayanagara Empire. In spite of his marriage into the Vijayanagara royalty through Krishnadevaraya's daughter, he was never really accepted as a full royal by other members of the royal house or by many factions of the nobility. This was because he was never part of the official Vijayanagara royal bloodline and was technically an outsider. So this made Ramaraya intensely long for that royal legitimacy through other means. Also, Ramaraya's indirect usurpation of powers by relegating the young emperor Sadasivaraya as a mere ceremonial head and locking him up in the palace didn't earn him any goodwill. On the contrary, it only showed everyone that Ramaraya was someone who craved intense power. The nobility and the citizens of Vijayanagara saw him as an autocrat with a desire to be the emperor if he could get away with a coup. This made Ramaraya not only crave for validation but also made him hate everything that denied him this. And he also wanted to be loved, respected, and feared as his father in law, the great Krishna Devaraya, was. He was asking for the impossible, but little did he know then. There is also evidence to show that Krishnadeva Raya's daughter herself, after the great Raya's death, wasn't seen as a full royal who was worthy of becoming a queen after marrying an outsider. Dinmalamba was never accorded the status and respect commanded by other women of the royal entourage. So, Ramaraya's craving for more legitimacy and more power might have also stemmed from this aspect too, which he saw as a direct insult to his wife and you know downgrading of her status as a humiliation. Since we are talking about Thirmalamba and how she was insulted and how her insult was taken up by Ramaraya, it might be a good segue To look at the character called Khunza Humayun, she was a Devadasi who rose to become a Begum and she became the Begum of Sultan Hussein Nizam Shah of Ahmednagar, the Sultan who was humiliated by Rama Raya and who vowed vengeance against him. So it is said that Khunza Humayun was one of the brainchilds behind this alliance or the initiative taken by the Hussein Nizam Shah to form an alliance with his rivals. So if you see there is an interesting symmetry here. You know the symmetry of two wives on the opposite ends have an influence on their husbands and the events that transpire we have seen earlier how the widowed queens of Krishna Devaraya played an important role in the elevation of Ramaraya after the death of Achyuta Devaraya and the you know crazed rampage by his brother-in-law Salakaraju Tirumala. So, in light of that, it's actually worth noting the plausible influence of both these wives of Ramaraya and Hussein Nizam Shah to have played a significant role in the decision-making of their own husbands and their respective rulers of their empires. Now let's look into the insights provided by K.A. Nilakanta Shastri on Ramaraya in his scholarly magnum opus, Further Sources on Vijayanagara History, Volume 1. After Ramaraya's elevation to the Supreme Regency along with the puppet emperor Sadasivaraya, The administration of the empire had undergone some drastic and unhealthy changes. The Vijayanagara civil services bureaucracy that consisted of mostly Brahmin officers were eliminated from the government service one after the other as they weren't supportive of Ramaraya's policies that radically departed from the established norms. According to the Bijapuri court historian Farishta, Ramaraya destroyed many of the ancient nobility in stature, power, and raised his own family to the highest rank. So, this is a classic case of dynastic nepotism, which we very often see even today in governance. This is also confirmed by an unnamed court historian of Qutub Shai kings. These statements by the Muslim historians are fully corroborated by inscriptions that were discovered later, after 1550, the names of the families of the Brahmin officers that used to frequently appear since the foundation of Vijayanagara Empire in the inscriptions prior to the elevation of Ramaraya, they stop appearing after he takes full control. The place of trained Brahmins and bureaucracy is filled in by Kshatriyas from Aravidu and Telugu Chola families all across the empire he fills important civil and military posts with his brothers cousins nephews confidants and his velama and kama adherents he does away with all the merit based appointments unlike his predecessors he even purges all traces of soluwa dynasty from governance structures who were respected for their contributions merit even by tuluwa dynasty and the great krishnadevaraya himself Pay attention to the earlier reference for Telugu Chola families along with his Aravidu clan. As discussed earlier, this is further proof of Ramaraya's obsession with the memories and ties that link him to the supposedly glorious days of Chalukya-Chola rivalry. In spite of Cholas being arch rivals of Chalukyas in their day, Ramaraya feels a lot more connected to his ancestral rivals than his current state of Vijayanagara that he serves and is ruler of. Having said that, there is enough research done by Richard M. Eaton and Philip B. Wagner in their scholarly work Power, Memory and Architecture where they show the immense impact of Chalukyan legacy uh, even after they had collapsed. So it is still probably the cultural shockwaves and the legacy uh, coupled with it which had this sort of an influence on Ramaraya when it came to Kalyana and you know trying to reclaim that lost heritage in his eyes. Also substantial evidence uh, which looks at the quote rhetoric of Vijayanagara's quote poets and genealogists between 1543 and 1547, during Ramaraya's early years as regent. So, there's a poet, uh, Konduranatha Kabi, who has praised members of Ramaraya's family with the extraordinary titles of Chalukya Chakravarti, uh, Chalukya Anvaya Bhava, bombastic titles like Kalyana Rajasthapanacharidu, which means founder of the kingdom of Kalyana. And there are even stone uh, Sanskrit inscriptions at the great temple of Tirupati which date to around 1561 which record the Aravidu family's genealogy and in in that inscription there is reference to Ramaraya's father as Lord of the excellent city of Kalyana. A quote from Eaton's work this is what he has to say, we should not dismiss as mere hyperbole Ramaraya's titles such as Chalukya Emperor or Lord of Kalyana as trumpeted by court poets, whether they were contemporary with Ramaraya or not. But turning from the rhetoric of his poets to the record of his own deeds, we find that his actions in fact confirmed their words. So as you see there is enough circumstantial evidence and even historical evidence to show the obsession of Ramaraya with the prior Chalukyan capital of Kalyana and how that played a central role in his foreign policy formulation and the aggressive uh, attitude that he employed with the sultans when it came to uh, having an influence on this particular city. Now coming to Ramaraya's record in the internal security matters and internal governance, as per Nilakanta Shastri, another important state policy norm that Ramaraya greatly diverged from was the induction of Mohammedans in thousands who were emigrating from Deccan Sultanates into the Vijayanagara army. Earlier policy was to only maintain very small contingents of Mohammedans and to not entrust any critical position or office in the core of state apparatus to them so that they might remain incapable to disturb the stability of the state. This policy had considered the high probability of many of the Mohammedan soldiers, officers and mercenaries moving to Vijayanagara, being spies or sleeper cells planted by the rival Deccan powers. Ramaraya appears to have thrown this established norm to the winds in his anxiety to consolidate power across all levels of government. He was also known to have extensively entertained Mohammedan mercenaries and adventurers in his service. He gave many of these dubious imports crucial facilities and posts that might have enabled them to acquire an intimate intelligence of the internal affairs of the kingdom and many confidential details of the security apparatus. One cannot stress enough on the fact that Vijayanagara was a truly cosmopolitan state with pluralism and tolerance thriving when it came to the overall society. But from the above insights into its internal affair policy norms, it seems to have made a clear distinction between social policies and statecraft policies. While social policy making was based on mutual respect, pluralism, the statecraft policy making seems to have been contingent on intelligence that considered the realistic plausibility of enemy infiltration into the state security apparatus. Its rulers clearly strived to balance both aspects, considering the naked fact that they were living in the age of sultans. So they had every motive to both appease and be wary of Mohammedans crossing over into their ranks and their societies. Finally, Ramaraya was the first Vijayanagara ruler who showed overt inclination to entangle himself in the interstate politics of the Deccan Sultanates. His predecessors who often came into contact with the Deccan states never encouraged the idea of entering into an alliance with them and nor did they engage in overt or covert backroom machinations to drive a further wedge between them. When I say them, it is between the sultans. They were mostly left to their own devices by Ramaraya's predecessors and were only countered on the battlefield aggressively and that too in the face of aggression. The era of Krishnadevaraya and his string of successive wins on the battlefields against the Deccan Sultans attest to this statement. It's also important to stress that Ramaraya's predecessors were very much aware of the valuable strategic depth that the constant rivalry between the Deccan Sultans offered to Vijayanagara's own long-term security not just as a buffer against an invasion by one or more Deccan sultans but also a crucial buffer against invasions from Delhi or the ascending Mughal sultanate. You see, the Deccan region was sort of a no-man's land between the north and the south. In Raya Vachakamu, the ethno-historical classic, it's clear that the South Indian polity saw India as split into four distinct regions. One was the Mughals in the north Gajapatis in the eastern board Vijayanagara in south and right in the middle the infertile Deccan region which was a land or a piece of land ruled by three rival Turks Golconda, Ahmednagar, and Bijapur the, that's how they used to be referred by them in those times these were seen as debased mlachas or barbarians who were nothing but usurpers. As we saw in the previous episode, Ramaraya's gunboat diplomacy was completely tangential to his predecessor's policies. It would be unfair to say or assume that he wasn't aware of the strategic depth aspect. He indeed was. But where he blundered was by overplaying his hand while at the same time corrupting the internal governance and security structures inadvertently. He went counter to the passive approach of his predecessors that had worked well so far by overly taking an aggressive diplomatic stand that didn't factor in a strategy against the combined alliance. So it was bound to backfire sooner or later. Playing one sultan against the other so brazenly and not taking a principled stand when it came to an alliance surely it might have given Vijayanagara crucial territorial and monetary gains in the short term. In the long term though all of that came at the cost of the much needed strategic depth of the empire and which finally culminated with the formation of a formidable Deccan alliance and the carnage at Tallikota. The other crucial blunder done by Ramaraya in my opinion was not to upgrade the fortifications and the bastion walls around Humpy, and overly depending on the first and second line of defense of mobile soldiers and cavalry so there was a sense of overconfidence too on Ramaraya's part where he saw that there was no need for a artillery or fortification uh, upgrades for Humpy's security. So, this directly led to Humpy uh, being laid bare open for the Deccan Sultans to come and attack without fear of any defense being put against their attacks by Humpy. So, this was also one crucial mistake by Ramaraya. I'm, I'm pretty sure it was his overconfidence of uh, his own superiority in the situation. So with this we end the journey of Ramaraya and his policies that led to the epic battle of Talikota, which shoved Vijayanagara into a terminal decline. I hope listeners enjoyed the in-depth look into the fascinating yet tragic personality of Ramaraya. It leaves us with a question to ponder upon though which is did Ramaraya fail Vijayanagara in his way in pursuit of immortality that his father-in-law had achieved? Or did the complex organism of Vijayanagara's society and polity fail him by not giving him his share of due, by inducting him into royalty and granting him the legitimacy he so craved in spite of decades of valiant service? In my opinion, it might be both. And it's really puzzling that in advanced society like Vijayanagara, which was well known to embrace and be generous to all sorts of foreigners and uh, asylum seekers and where it even supposedly gave shelter to barbarians across coming across the seas. So such a society having difficulty embracing one of their own is really puzzling. Again, these are some of the strange ways of the world. So whatever it might be, love him or hate him. One cannot ignore this fascinating character in the Vijayanagara history. He was to an extent a master politician and he was an effective administrator too, you know, barring some of the mistakes that I mentioned and especially a courageous risk taker who fought valiantly for the empire till his last breath. And he also happened to be someone who preferred to have his head chopped off instead of bowing his head to the sword of Holy Jihad wielded by the Deccan Sultans. In the next episode, we will delve into the aspect of how power and politics worked in Vijayanagara Polity Society. We will see how the political game was being played in a dynamic state like Vijayanagara. With the help of it, we shall explore and debunk some myths that claim Vijayanagara Polity was extremely irrational. The dance to the whims and fancies of its kings, who at times were nothing more than glorified despots. Hope to see you soon in the next episode. Hit the subscribe button if you have liked this show so far. Please feel free to leave a rating, review or suggestions for the podcast in the review section. Thank you once again for listening to Itihasa, the Indic History Podcast. And this is your host Narendra Vikram signing off for the day.